This is The Guardian. Hey, Jane Lee here, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is the full story. The Israel-Hamas war is now in its third week, and with no end in sight, today we want to play you an episode from our global news podcast, Today in Focus. It looks back at the roots of the Israel-Palestine conflict and takes you back through the history to help you understand how we got to this latest conflict. Here's host Nosheen Iqbal. For decades... The Israeli-Palestinian issue has been one of the most divisive and disputed subjects of our time. Getting to grips with it can feel daunting, and at times, difficult to know where to begin. I think the hardest thing about this is firstly what you leave out, because you could write a book about it, and many people have. And then the other very difficult element is, of course, there are so many differing interpretations of history. Every part of this decades-long conflict is contested, often passionately. And when nothing is settled, even the history of the region becomes a battleground because there isn't agreement on where that history begins. Yeah, I got a number of emails from people suggesting what the starting point may be. Plenty of people went back centuries before even the Romans... One person wrote to me and suggested I should have begun in 686 with a Muslim invasion. We won't be going back that far, but over the course of this episode, we'll try to explain significant chapters of the aggression, bloodshed and division in an attempt to make sense of the horror still unfolding. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus... In order to understand what we are witnessing today in Israel and Gaza, what do we need to understand about the past? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Chris McGreal, you're a writer for Guardian US and a former Jerusalem correspondent for the paper. As you said, there are many different points you could begin at to explain the roots of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. For lots of people, it feels too vast, feels too overwhelming and complicated. But you are here to try and simplify things for us today. And we're going to start with Britain's involvement in the region. So the British occupied and then controlled what was then Palestine from 1917 to 1948. How central are they to this story? Well, so you see, you get Arthur Balfour write his Balfour Declaration, a British minister, Balfour, Arthur Balfour, who 
says that that part of the world, Palestine, should be the basis of a home for the Jewish people. In principle, they support the establishment of a, a Jewish state, although it, it's a slightly contradictory letter because it also says it shouldn't be established over the interests of the indigenous, the existing Arab population. But, you know, talk to Palestinians today and they will point the finger at that letter and at the British uh, as the source of their problems. Because what you see after that through the 1920s and 30s is a great increase in Jewish immigration into mandate Palestine under the British. Britain opened the doors for quite a long time because there's a, a very large number of Jews arriving from Germany in particular, Nazi Germany. As Germany and other nations increase their persecution, the Jews are turning more and more to their promised land, turning with them towards the new life in the only land in the world where there seems a hope of living in peace. So as the Jewish immigration increased, so you see the friction increase. A guardian of law and order looks out over the old walled city of Jerusalem as once again the irresistible force of Zionism meets the immovable object of Arab nationalism among the blood-stained hills of the Holy Land. On one side, you had you know, a very effective Jewish underground fledgling Israeli army, in effect, in Mandate Palestine that was fighting the British. They saw this as a colonial war, an anti-colonial war against British colonialism. You have Palestinian or Arab forces on the other. The British are trying to keep control and really not managing to do it. And they had the whole problem over to the United Nations and really want to be rid of it at that point. So from the 1920s onwards, there was increased Jewish migration into what was then called Mandate Palestine, which was under British control. And those numbers, as you say, really went up during and after the Second World War when Jewish communities were fleeing Nazi Germany. Chris, can you tell me a bit more about the country they were arriving in? What was Palestinian society like at the time? And what did the country look like at that point? A large part of it was agricultural. Palestinian society, land is central to families and villages, communities. Um, and often the land really wasn't owned by individuals as such. It was recognised as owned collectively either by families or by villages. Uh, one of the problems that's arisen over the years is that lack of formal deeds and recordings of who owns what land, particularly in the West Bank. And one of the consequences is that Israel seizes quite a lot of land from those Palestinians who don't have a record that they own it and declare it state land. You know, there were towns and cities, but they weren't well developed. Tel Aviv, on the other hand, was a, a city that had Jewish immigrants had started building in the early 20th century, and that was becoming a major and well-developed Jewish city. So you did have this contrast. The progress of civilization has in no way changed the life of the Arab population of Palestine. Today, they eke out their primitive existence in much the same way as did their furthest wandering ancestors. To be frank, then and now, there's a sort of an underlying prejudice around that, that Arab communities in Israel and the occupied territories are perceived by many in Israel to be underdeveloped and backward. So it was a rural country, but it was developing and then had all the angst that came with that. 
Chrissy said that in 1947, the British handed over what they saw as the growing problem of Palestine to the United Nations, which then voted for the creation of an Israeli state in what was called then the Mandate of Palestine. What were the reasons behind that? What was the thinking at the time? It was an idea that was essentially founded as a response to the persecutions, particularly in Eastern Europe. But, you know, there was plenty of anti-Semitism to go around in Western Europe as well. I think it takes on a different idea after the Holocaust. Suddenly, you know, six million uh, Jews are dead. There are a, a, a million or more survivors. And for them, the idea of staying on this continent for many of them that had committed such an enormous crime was no longer tenable. And Zionism really comes into its own. The essence of Zionism was the creation of a Jewish homeland, you know, for Jewish people, governed by Jewish people in what had been the traditional area of Israel, or the biblical area of Israel, I should say. At Flushing, Long Island, the General Assembly of the United Nations has made its decision on Palestine. The resolution was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. Well, as we just heard, that vote to create Israel was not unanimous among the 56 nations. There were 33 for... 13 against, and 10 abstentions. What happened next? Well, it goes down very badly with the Arab population, which essentially sees its land being stolen and given to this new Jewish state. They really just looked at the map and carved it up according to where the major Jewish populations were inside Mandate Palestine, added a bit more land, and we end up with this very, very weird-shaped division of the land between Jews and Arabs. And so, you know, it's evident that this is going to lead to this huge transfer of land. On paper, the Arab population is supposed to be able to stay on its land inside the Jewish state, the new state of Israel. But I think very early on, they were aware that that was uh, probably untenable. So you immediately see a rejection by the Palestinians themselves and by the neighboring Arab countries. At Haifa, the last British troops leave Palestine, and very few of them can have been sorry. So, Chris, Israel is created, the British leave. What happens then? So, in May 1948, you get David Ben-Gurion, who becomes Israel's first Prime Minister. He reads the Declaration of Independence. It's the day before the British mandate expires, so... This is what's going to replace the British mandate. And he says this will be known as the State of Israel. He reads that declaration and that is the establishment of Israel. Latest camera records from Palestine show heavy damage in and around the Arab city of Jaffa as Haganah troops move up to new positions along the Warscard roads. And then the next day, war is declared. You see the neighbouring Arab countries invade and try and kill Israel at birth, essentially. And Israel is fighting for its existence within hours of it having declared independence. And at that point, it's not clear that Israel will win. It's up against all these Arab armies, the surrounding countries, uh, the army from Iraq even comes. And I think partly because 
after the experience of the Holocaust, so many of the Jews in in Israel would have regarded this fight as fighting for their very existence. If they don't win this, there's nowhere for them to go. There's nowhere safe for them. And so they fight for their lives, literally. And they win, and they push back the Arab armies, and you see new borders effectively drawn in 1949 that give Israel much more land than it got under the UN partition plan. And those are the borders, really, that are still recognised to this day. So after the 1948 war, which lasts just under a year, as you said, Israel wins and takes control of even more land than it had been originally promised under that 1947 partition plan. What did that victory feel like for the Jews who had been so desperate to have a homeland of their own? Israel feels very insecure, but they have established themselves militarily and as an entity. They get recognition from around the world, the United States, the UK, other countries recognise this new state of Israel. And so I think that whilst their position is quite precarious and economically they've got very little money and, and things are very difficult, they had established this state and I think that there was a you know, great deal of celebration around that. But what did that mean for the Palestinians who lived on that land? About 80% of the, the Arab population is driven out of the Israeli part of Mandate Palestine. This has always kind of been one of the most contentious questions. The Palestinians call it the Nakba, the catastrophe. So you see about 700,000 plus Palestinians who are forced out of their homes, their villages, off their land. About 130,000 remain. Some of them are told you can come back when the conflict's over, but of course they're never allowed back. You know, the evidence of history is that, in fact, they were driven out at gunpoint. In some cases, they were driven out uh, by massacres. In others, they just went out of fear. But they almost all left unwillingly. And then by 1950, essentially, 93% of that land is in Jewish hands. So Israel, as it is now, is bordered by the countries of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan and Egypt. But can you explain to me a map of what the region looks like after that 1948 war? So essentially what you have is you have Israel and at that point what is now the West Bank had become part of Jordan. So you you have those 700,000 Palestinians have gone into either the West Bank or Jordan or down to Gaza. Now Gaza is part of Egypt at that point. And then in the north you've got the Golan Heights which is part of Syria and the border uh, with Lebanon. So about 93% of the land, uh, 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 when everything, the dust settles inside Israel, is owned by quasi-state Jewish institutions. And they ensure that only Jews live on it. And the villages that have been abandoned, about 400 of them, are largely destroyed and often built on top of, kibbutzes are built on top of, or Jewish-Israeli villages are built on top. So you kind of see a, an erasing of the Palestinian presence over the following years, and all of this land essentially falls into the hands of, of the state. So Israel, at its narrowest point, um, probably isn't much more than about 30 or 40 miles wide at that point. I mean, I've stood in the settlements of the West Bank, and you can see all the way to Tel Aviv and the sea, so it's not, it's not very wide. You know, at that moment, although it has all this extra land, it's still, to be honest, a very, very small state.
Chris, we've talked about what happened in the region in the 1940s. What's the next significant chapter of this story that we need to understand? So one of the ideas in Israel was that the Palestinians weren't really a people, that they were all just Arabs like the Arabs in the in the region, and that they could just go off and live somewhere else. Israel didn't think of the Palestinians as Palestinians, but the Palestinians did. They saw themselves as a people increasingly, and they saw themselves as a people with a cause and a case. And so in 1964, you see the formation of the Palestine Liberation Organization. We will uh, continue on our fighting, definite. I am declaring here by the name of this freedom fighters, by the name of our people, by the name of the Palestinian, that we will continue in struggling. But the man who emerges at the top of it is a very charismatic individual, Yasser Arafat, uh, who will become known as the, the father of terrorism and, and hijackings over the years. He becomes a very, to some, heroic, to others, notorious figure through the 60s and 70s. But he becomes the face of, of the Palestinian cause. And I think at that point, people really start to think of the Palestinians as Palestinians and not merely displaced Arabs. We'll continue on our fight to return to our homeland return to our Palestine. We have no alternative. Well, soon after the founding of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, then comes the Six-Day War of 1967. Chris, can you tell me about that and why it's so important to understanding Israel today? Yeah. So throughout that period, that first 20 years of Israel's existence, you'd always had the threat of conflict from the neighboring Arab states. Um, and then in 67, you see that increase greatly and Egypt in particular move its troops towards the Israeli border. So Israel essentially strikes first and it's hugely successful. It's called the Six Day War because it was all over in six days. Across the deserts of Sinai, a biblical prophecy comes to pass as the forces of Israel sweep on in an astonishing triumph of strategy. Inspired by Defense Minister Diane. She took just over 50 hours to achieve her two main objectives. And in that period of time, they basically obliterate the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. They march into the West Bank. They take all of the Sinai from Egypt and, and Gaza. They march into the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and take that. This is the Golan Heights from Syria. And after six days, they've achieved this huge victory. And I think it's important in a whole lot of ways, one of which was it gave Israel a new confidence militarily. On the international stage, there was a great deal of admiration for Israel. Um, Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, became extremely well known around the world as a man with one eye patch. Nasser knows that even now, Israel is much, much stronger than his forces or all the Arab countries together forces. I have no, no doubt about it. And I think that Nasser... So again, Israel wins another war against several states. What does it change for Israel? It changes the game on the ground for Israel because suddenly it's occupying people, it's occupying the Palestinians, it's occupying this land. And two things then happen. Firstly, you see the start of the settler movement. These are often religious nationalist Jews who regard the West Bank, which is known in Israel as uh, Judea and Samaria, as the real biblical Israel, and they want it. But also you see Israel having to govern... Uh, and other peoples and 
that whole occupation, that whole governance was on paper, supposed to be temporary. And that's a whole new area for them, which really has shaped Israel's military and political destiny ever since. And so it's after this war that Israel has now occupied the Sinai Peninsula, Golan Heights, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, which means over one million Palestinians now live directly under Israeli rule. How does Palestinian resistance evolve over the years that followed? So the defeat of 67 for the Arab armies and the occupation really was a, a you know hammer blow to the Palestinian cause. Uh, you see the PLO, it keeps up its cause, it you know, hijackings, killings, you get the Munich massacre of 72, uh, the Olympics, but Israel looks very, very strong. And then in 73, you get the Arab armies attack again. And at that point, Israel comes close to defeat. For a, a few days, it, it, Israel's in retreat. The Arab armies are advancing. And there's this incredible footage of Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, on the television and he looks a broken man, and he starts to talk about options that we've never considered before, and he seems to be talking about the use of nuclear weapons. Now, we are now at a stage where we want to end the war of Yom Kippur. And, you know, it wins that war eventually, but things change very dramatically. You see the fall of left-wing governments, which are held responsible for not having predicted or expected the war. You see the rise of the first right-wing government elected in 1977, the precursors to the governments we see today. So there's state-level discussion of nuclear weapons. There's a new right-wing government. And this atmosphere really, as you say, seems to set the tone for the decades to come in Israeli politics. But what about Palestinians? Where does this leave them? You get a, a younger generation of Palestinians come along in the late 80s, they've all been born since the declaration of uh, independence by Israel. Many of them have been born since the 1967 occupation. So they've they really only known occupation if they're in their 20s. And they turn against the occupation. They rise up in an intifada, an uprising, and really shape the status quo. And it, it's interesting because it's not arranged by the PLO, but what you had seen was a fairly brutal uh, military governance um, and which the Israeli army killed people on a fairly regular basis, civilians. And eventually, you know, like in a lot of places, it just came suddenly. Israelis are killing us and shooting and beating us all the time. So we think any one of us could do this. Anyone from 6 to 50 might carry out this act. And it becomes, a, a, you know, a, again, a defining moment because Israel doesn't really know how to deal with this because these aren't armed young men and women. They have stones, that's it. And Israel reacts in an incredibly brutal fashion to it. They have to stop all this nonsense of the riots, of throwing stones the defence minister and the prime minister, the Yitzhak Rabin says, you know, he's going to go and break their bones. Uh, that's what he orders his army to do. So young Palestinians have risen up. They throw stones at Israeli soldiers and this forms their rebellion, the Intifada, and they face violent consequences for it. Chris, how long does this go on for? 
So this goes on for five or six years, and it really changes the narrative both inside Israel and outside. Uh, inside Israel, you know, there have been the narrative of the the quiescent Arab population, which was perfectly happy being governed by the Israelis. You know, one of the basic racist myths about the Palestinians told in Israel is that they didn't have political aspirations. They weren't very well developed. They just wanted to go out and tend their olive groves and Israel discovered otherwise. It also shifted the narrative internationally because it put occupation four square. Up until then, you'd had Israel as a very small country defending itself from attacks by bigger neighbours and Israel had always been seen as the victim. Suddenly, on the television screens around the world, you see that Israel as oppressor, as occupier, and its very violent response to the first intifada. Coming up, the difficult path to negotiating peace and why it hasn't worked. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, as you've explained, a lot of countries have had a hand in this conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Do they also have a responsibility to help solve it? And if so, what effort was made? So the first intifada shifts the dial the Israeli leadership starts to question whether it can just go on occupying another people. And and what we have to remember here is is a very important fact that obsesses Israelis, which is numbers. They're obsessed with demographics. And one of the things they realize is that the area, if you take in all of the area under Israel's control, both Jewish and Arab, there are almost equal numbers of Jews and Arabs. And that threatens the idea of a Jewish majority. So the Israelis were worried that if Palestinians were part of Israel, the nation would lose its Jewish majority. So what did they do about it? It begins with secret negotiations, which really nobody knows anything about. And they're going on behind the scenes. And they're they're prompted by the First Intifada. And out of that, you get the Oslo peace process when it finally becomes public. The Oslo peace agreement, signed in Washington in August 1993, signaled a fresh start in relations between Israel and the Palestinians. Had an agreement between the Israeli leadership, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat, the PLO, for the establishment in the West Bank and Gaza of a Palestinian authority, a degree of self-governance. Today, with all our hearts and all our souls, we bid them shalom. 
Salam. Peace. This laid a foundation for Palestinian self-rule, although numerous difficult points remained to be worked out between the eternal enemies. At last, peace had a hope. One of the things that is important to remember in this is that these accords, these Oslo accords, do not specifically mention a Palestinian state. And Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister, had always said he did not support a Palestinian state. That said, lots of people thought that would have to be the inevitable outcome down the road. But the Intifada leads to these peace agreements. We who have fought against you, the Palestinians, we say to you today, in a loud and a clear voice, enough of blood and tears. Enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What was the peace process in 1993, which came to be known as the Oslo Accords, was it seen by anyone as a success or was it always doomed to fail? That's a really good question. There are people who regarded it as a sellout from the beginning. One of the things you see is from the moment the accords are made public, you see the right wing in Israel agitate against it, led principally by men like Benjamin Netanyahu, who is now the Prime Minister, Ariel Sharon, who was the Prime Minister a couple of decades ago. These men are leading rallies of which Rabin is portrayed as a Nazi. There are posters for him in SS uniform. He's betraying the Jewish people. He's going to get us all killed. Or alternatively, from the nationalist religious right, that he's giving up our biblical lands. And so it becomes very, very heated and and a right-wing extremist assassinates Rabin. Wearing a white bulletproof vest, the student who tried to kill the Middle East peace process was back at the scene of his crime. Do you regret what you did? And you have to remember, this was a, there was a time of international hope. You know, communism has collapsed in Eastern Europe. Uh, apartheid is falling in South Africa, and by 1994, Mandela's president. Uh, and we don't really know what path it would have taken if Yitzhak Rabin hadn't been assassinated. But the agreement was deeply flawed in many ways, and I think one of the problems with it was that it divided up the territory, uh, particularly the West Bank, into areas of control, which still gave Israel a majority of the, the land under its control, particularly where the settlements were, and it confined most of the Palestinian population to only 22% of the territory. Chris, at the time, the proposal of a two-state solution, lands for both Jewish people and Palestinians, was lauded as a positive way to bring peace to the region, even though, as you said, it wasn't necessarily a fair division of the land. But it failed for other reasons. Can you explain why it was so unpopular? Well, first, it hasn't always been unpopular. Um, and again, events push people in directions. So the second intifada from, from 2000 to 2004, 2005, was extremely violent. You see this wave of suicide bombings by Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. I lived in Jerusalem at the time and I could hear bombs go off down the street. And it was a very, very brutal conflict. And you see a response from Ariel Sharon, a former general who was prime minister, and very hard line in which he sends the tanks into the West Bank and Gaza. And there's a brutal suppression 
But it's a salutary experience, that intifada, for both Israelis and for Sharon. And, and you see Sharon do something that really astonished his, his country and everybody else, which is he starts to talk about occupation, something he's never done before. He's, he's never used that word, and or at least not in public speeches. And he says, we can't go on occupying another people. And that's a direct result of the Intifada. And you could make the argument that in that sense, the Intifada was actually a success for the Palestinians because it forced the right to again address the question of a Palestinian state. And so Ariel Sharon begins what he calls disengagement, and he's going to remove Jewish communities from parts of the occupied territories, and he begins by getting all of the settlements out of Gaza and out of the northern West Bank. Now, he had a stroke, so we don't know how much further he would have gone, but there's quite a lot of evidence that he had a very truncated idea of what a Palestinian state would look like. It's so remarkable because from what you're saying, two Israeli leaders seem to have an idea of a two-state solution, but one was assassinated and one had a stroke. So where have those ideas gone? How does Netanyahu feel about this solution? The problem remains the right wing. Netanyahu, who is now prime minister and is now the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, has always said he will not support a Palestinian state. He's occasionally paid lip service to the two-state solution. But if you look what he's saying to his party behind the scenes uh, and his actions, it's always been no Palestinian state. No matter where the Israeli public's at, they've, they've had leaders who have done everything they can to subvert a Palestinian state. And that, that really has been an overwhelming problem, along with the fact that Palestinians have dreadful leadership as well, which is only got worse over the years um, and has lost the confidence of the Palestinian people. But where does the two-state solution sit with Palestinians? Like, what did they make of it? I think they've lost confidence in the process. They have lost hope that it will produce a Palestinian state. Some Palestinians still would like the idea of a two-state solution. But at the same time, you know, the idea that they will go back to their land inside Israel is still very important belief. And that right of return of the Arab population to their land in Israel, to their homes, to their villages, uh, hasn't been abandoned by a lot of Palestinians, even though privately many will say they don't think they'll live to see it. Well, Chris, that roughly brings us up to where we are now in terms of who controls what land and also, I guess, the emergence of Hamas, who were elected by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to form a new government in 2006. Can you tell me a bit more about them and how far their influence reaches? Sheikh Yassin, who is a quite popular, charismatic figure, a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, uh, he creates Hamas at the beginning of that first intifada. And as time goes by, it proves to be hugely significant. Uh, one of the ironies is that Israel actually saw it as a benefit initially, it saw Hamas as a, a group that would bleed support from the more nationalist PLO. That's not how things turned out. With gunfire, a takeover of Gaza by Hamas may be near. It's looking to complete its military victory in Gaza, splitting Palestinian territory in two. Islamic extremists controlling the coastal Gaza Strip 
and Western-backed Fatah ruling the West Bank. And how do the rights of Palestinians living in different territories compare? Because Hamas doesn't govern all Palestinians, even though they have dominated the Palestinian cause in recent years. So there are three, really three kinds of Palestinians now. You've got the Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, and they, in law, if not in practice, have full rights. They've been deliberately kept underdeveloped and, and poorer than the Jewish population, and that had been a government strategy for a very long time. But they can vote, and they have full civil rights on paper. You've got the Palestinian population of the West Bank, which is under military law and really has no rights to speak of. They can and do have access to the Israeli courts to fight against, for instance, land seizures and have done that. But on the whole, their lives are governed by military courts and military law. And then a third kind of group are those Palestinians who have the right to live in Jerusalem. And they have what's known as a blue ID. They have free movement, essentially, in Israel. They can work in Israel, but they're not citizens of Israel and they don't have the vote. Chris, it's obviously so fraught and so complicated. I mean, thank you so much for explaining it all to us in a, a digested form. But you know, today, in the meantime, we have a rising death toll with no sign of a ceasefire being brokered anytime soon. Having looked back at the last hundred years or so, can you see any hope in this situation at all? I think it, it is a very, very dreadful moment and we really don't know where it's going. And one of the reasons we don't know where it's going is it's in part driven by Benjamin Netanyahu's fight for his political life. He will be blamed by the Israeli public for this incredible tragedy, for this massacre. Right now, he's fighting for his political life by hitting the Palestinians in Gaza very, very hard. But if we wanted to look for possibilities of hope, you know, it's partly rooted in what we talked about earlier. After the first and second intifadas, you see this shift, you see this uh, recognition that actually it's an implicit admission that there is something to the Palestinian cause, not a justification for Hamas's crimes, but there is a context here and the Palestinians can't be simply made to go away. And I think that was the lesson of the first intifada. It's the lesson of the second intifada. And the appalling events of the past few days are a reminder that the Palestinians are still there and are still to be reckoned with. And I doubt it will be Netanyahu's government, but maybe a government that follows will say it's time for us to sort this out uh, and sort it out in a way that genuinely addresses the issues, even if they can't be all fully addressed and nobody's going to be really totally happy with the outcome. You know, simply going on with the occupation like it is is, uh, is not sustainable. We can only hope. Chris, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That was Guardian US writer Chris McGreal. You can read his piece titled What Are the Roots of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict? And more coverage from Jerusalem on the homepage live blog or at theguardian.com. That's it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Tom Glasser and Lucy Hoff. Sound design is by Solomon King. The executive producer is Huma Khalili. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired? 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 